Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, and thanks for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Megan Adelman, and I'm a family medicine pharmacy specialist at Cleveland Clinic Akron General. I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are Caitlin Grossman, a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious disease clinic at Tufts Medical Center, and Diane Kim, an ambulatory care pharmacy specialist in primary care and cardiology at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. Thanks today for joining me, Caitlin and Diane. Excited to be here. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, guys. Let's get started talking about today's exciting topic, an update on sexually transmitted infections, treatment strategies, and considerations. It's a great time to talk about infectious disease. It seems like there's been multiple guideline update. Hopefully, we can put a little plug in for our other HIV preventative podcast. But we also saw that guidelines were updated for STI treatment by the CDC in summer of 2021. It seems like there's significant conversations about the changes and recommendations for gonorrhea and chlamydia treatment. Can you guys touch upon uh, what these changes look like? Yeah, there, there were quite a few changes, but I think you're right. The biggest one that I feel like are really going to impact or that are impacting practice now were the changes in gonorrhea and chlamydia treatment. So gonorrhea is now recommended to be treated with monotherapy of higher doses of ceftriaxone, and azithromycin is no longer recommended in combination therapy for gonorrhea treatment, but it's also no longer recommended as a first-line treatment option for chlamydia. However, before we get into kind of the details of these, of these recommendation changes, I just want to highlight why I think these guideline updates are so important. Many outside of the infectious disease world might not realize how much has changed in the landscape of STIs in the past few years, but we are currently at our absolute highest level of STIs in the U.S. in the history of data tracking. So 20 years ago, gonorrhea rates in the U.S. were at historic lows, syphilis was close to elimination, but we've really lost this progress and we are now at, like I said, an all-time high for the sixth consecutive year for the last time we had data in 2019. A potentially shocking statistic is that one in five individuals in the U.S. have an active sexually transmitted infection. So I promise you, you will run into patients who have active STIs. One major contributor to this was cuts to STI programs at a local and state level, which has become an even bigger problem during the COVID pandemic since a lot of funds in infectious disease have shifted towards COVID instead of STIs. So I think this all just highlights why it's more important than ever for pharmacists and actually all healthcare providers to be aware of how to successfully treat these infections. Wow, some really noticeable content changes then. And I think highlighting why we're having that conversation today, it's interesting, maybe I'm dating myself. I remember always using azithromycin and ceftriaxone together. Um, Can you guys talk to what led to that change in the removal of azithromycin? Of course. So gonorrhea treatment resistance has been an ongoing challenge to combating the STI epidemic. There has been a number of changes to preferred treatments over the past few decades. So gonorrhea manages to develop really quick resistance to a number of drug classes. We've gone through sulfonamides, penicillins, tetracyclines, fluoroquinolones, and even some cephalosporins. And because of this combination treatment has been recommended since 1985, hoping that by combining two antibiotics with different mechanisms of action that we might prevent some developed drug resistance. 
in the past decade or so, so Megan, you're not dating yourself too much, um, the combination has been ceftriaxone and zithromycin. In addition to hopefully combating some drug resistance, this combination also would effectively treat chlamydia if there was a co-infection. Chlamydia screening used to be much less significantly available than it is today, so it was a benefit during that time. But the major drivers behind removing azithromycin now were one, increasing resistance to azithromycin, and two, the focus on antimicrobial stewardship, which is not a new concept for us as pharmacists. So just some data to throw out here. So in five years, the resistance to azithromycin increased more than sevenfold. And some recent data shows that almost 9% of all gonorrhea isolates from men who have sex with men have reduced azithromycin susceptibility. And then the other concern with the antimicrobial stewardship is that giving more antibiotics, azithromycin, could potentially have some effect on the gut microbiome and on co-infections. So some pediatric data has shown that kids who receive azithromycin just twice a year have increases in antimicrobial resistance genes in their gut reservoir. And higher rates of macrolide resistance in strep pneumo infections were seen in communities that had received mass administrations of azithromycin. So just like we're seeing in a lot of other infections, maybe less antibiotics is better. Well said, especially with that final comment on maybe less is a little bit more. You also alluded to, uh, again, with this change in the combination, the change in the ceftriaxone dose is potentially helping with successful treatment and this being a major change in the guidelines. What as pharmacists should we take away from this? So the biggest takeaway has to be the recommended dosing regimen. So previously, as we recall, gonorrhea treatment was a standard ceftriaxone 250 milligram dose for a one-time injection intramuscularly. But now, not only is the dose itself higher, but it's also weight-based. The recommended dose is 500 milligrams intramuscularly for a one-time dose for the patients who are less than 150 kilograms. And if the patient weighs over 150 kilograms, then the dose is even higher as ceftriaxone one gram intramuscularly, again, for a one-time dose. Like Caitlin had alluded to earlier, the reason why the doses are now higher is because there are current concerns for the increasing MIC or the minimum inhibitory concentrations worldwide of gonorrhea. So with the increasing MICs and knowing that the concentration of cetriaxone has to be above the MIC for about 24 hours, the dosing is now recommended at the higher dose. And actually that 500 milligram dose should cover an MIC for about 50 hours, which is beneficial for harder to treat gonorrhea, such as pharyngeal gonorrhea. And also to note, this should be administered in the gluteal and not in the deltoid because of the high volume. And for completeness sake, I also want to mention the alternative regimens, which are gentamicin 240 milligrams intramuscularly for a one-time dose, plus azithromycin 2 grams orally for a one-time dose. The azithromycin single dose is, is effective against gonorrhea, but as Caitlin had mentioned, there are concerns of monotherapy because the gonorrhea could easily develop resistance to the azithromycin. So this combination is the uh, alternative regimen for gonorrhea management. And if the patient can't get an intramuscular dosing, then an oral option is available for cefexime 800 milligrams for one-time dose. Well, Dan, thank you for the really, really complete update on that. I'm going to shift a little bit. We've talked about some of the significant changes both you and Caitlin highlighted for gonorrhea treatment. Dan, you also mentioned doxycycline with chlamydia too. Can you expand upon this? Yeah, sure. So um, according to the CDC, the first line recommended regimen for chlamydia is no longer the azithromycin one gram dose orally. Now the recommended regimen is doxycycline 100 milligrams by mouth twice a day for seven days. 
The alternative regimens are dole, azithromycin, one gram by mouth for a one-time dose, or levofloxacin, 500 milligrams once daily for seven days. But these are both the options as a second-line recommendation. So what led to these changes? There was a lot of interim data that became available that collectively contributed to these updates. So, for example, there was the 2019 Cochrane analysis that looked at 14 studies suggesting that regimens with azithromycin are likely less effective than doxycycline, although at the time the clinical difference was still a little unclear. And then in 2021, there was that randomized controlled trial that was published in the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal, where they assessed the treatment of rectal chlamydia among men who have sex with men treated with azithromycin versus doxycycline. And the cure rate for patients treated with azithromycin was 76% compared to the cure rate for the patients treated with the doxycycline course, which was 100%. And this difference was statistically significant. There's also additional data to support using doxycycline for women, suggesting improved cure rates, especially in the harder-to-treat rectal chlamydia. So although azithromycin is known to be effective against urogenital chlamydia in women, recent data does suggest that there is notable higher efficacy in the rectal chlamydia, and fully treating this is really important because otherwise it can lead to transmission and further complications as well. Therefore, the overall guidelines is pretty straightforward forward and, and pretty clear that doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days is first line. So one thing to keep in mind with this update is the impact on adherence. There's a huge difference between a one-time dose where the patient can literally take the full course in the office in front of you as a clinician versus doxycycline, which we have to rely on the patient's diligence to adherence to take the twice daily regimen for seven full days. Wow, lots of things to consider, but great updates. Again, as a family medicine pharmacist, I think sometimes we we punt this to our infectious disease colleagues, but things that I'm still surprised that I get questions about all the time, both urgent care family medicine tends to sometimes be the first people to see this, but I'm glad we've got our infectious disease colleagues is, uh, coming on board too. I do want to spend some of our final time on overall counseling, some considerations as pharmacists, we frequently get pulled into the patient rooms to discuss the implications. I know some of this information isn't new, but Caitlin, can you wrap us up and tell us some of the things that uh, providers and pharmacists should be aware of? Of course. So I'm really glad that Diane highlighted that difference and focus on adherence for the change from, you know, a one-time dose to now a week regimen. So counseling on that adherence is absolutely key. And this is the same guidance as when it was azithromycin, but the importance for patients to know that they have to abstain from sex for seven days after starting treatment. So for azithromycin, that was seven days after they completed, but for doxycycline, it's once they complete the entire course. So they need to complete the entire course and have no active symptoms of the chlamydia. So it is very common for partners to reinfect each other if they both aren't appropriately treated. So waiting that seven days and treating partners is the biggest counseling point I think people should take away. So one way to hopefully address treating these partners is by using expedited partner therapy or EPT. In preparation for this podcast, I did review some law and it looks like 46 states in the U.S. do permit EPT. And EPT is the ability to prescribe antibiotics for chlamydia for the partners of the patient you're seeing even if you have no established patient relationship with them. So we recommend that when you're starting chlamydia treatment, you ask, you know, how many partners have they, do they currently have and write prescriptions for those partners. You can write those prescriptions under the name of the partner, or you can just write a blank prescription with the patient name as EPT. And those can be filled at any local pharmacy if your state allows it. 
Uh, now with a seven, uh, to kind of shift a little bit about counseling, just basics on doxycycline that are not new to pharmacists, but now that someone has to take this for a week, things like administration and drug interactions are very important to highlight. So make sure that you're counseling on the interactions with food and with polyvalent cations so that things are being appropriately spaced out. And the last thing I'll highlight about this change is a reminder that doxycycline is still not recommended in pregnant women. So if a pregnant woman needs to be treated for chlamydia, we would still use the alternative therapy azithromycin. Some great content and considerations. Unfortunately, again, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Caitlin Grossman and Diane Kim for joining me to discuss an update on sexually transmitted infections, treatment strategies, and considerations. Hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast and maybe we've sparked your interest in learning more. I do want to put a plug in for JAMA Clinical Reviews as a podcast. There is a diagnosis and treatment of STI podcast posted on January 25th of 2022, which contains additional information that we did not cover here today. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out the ASHP's Ambulatory Care Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as Ambulatory Care Career Toolkit, certification resources, rotation guides, guidelines, policies, and information on billing and reimbursement. Be sure to also become a member of the section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners Connect community where you can exchange ideas and ask more questions from your peers. Thanks again for tuning in today to this session and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP content member experts on a variety of clinical topics. Diane, Caitlin, Thank you again so much for your clinical insight, and we look forward to talking to more. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.